I'm Ardra Shepard, and this is Tripping On Air, a place to talk about what it's like to have MS. Normally, I like to make everything about me, but MS also affects the people we love. So weighing in from the partner perspective is Alex Hajar, my friend whose wife also has MS. Join us monthly as we dish about everything from symptoms to stigma. If you have MS or you love someone who does, we want to connect with you. MS is the most common cause of disability in young adults. Fortunately, disability benefits exist to replace at least some of your income when a serious illness like MS prevents you from working. But accessing disability benefits can be confusing, time-consuming, and even intimidating. Proving you're sick enough to warrant benefits can be difficult and demoralizing, and there's no guarantee you'll be approved. If you're stressing over disability benefits, this episode is for you. Trippers, I am pumped about our guest today, the woman who taught me the nine times table. She taught me the McDonald's Big Mac song. She taught me to drive and she taught me to never break more than one law at a time. She is one of my very best friends and has known me since birth. My cousin, Laura Hillier, is a lawyer who is on the front lines, an advocate for people with disabilities. She's an insurance litigator and she's got the straight goods on how you can make sure you can navigate your disability claim with your self-esteem and your sanity intact. Laura, welcome to the show. Thank you. I'm happy to be here. I won't make you sing the McDonald's Big Mac song if you don't ask me to repeat the nine times table because I might have forgotten actually by now. It is in no one's interest for me to sing. I promise. (laughs) I promise. All right. Um, yeah, I mean, we're, we're missing out on that McDonald's Big Mac sponsorship. Maybe we don't. Yeah, maybe we can get it. You can get it this way. <laughs> Listen, before we get to disability claims, the decision to stop working can be excruciating. What kinds of questions should we be asking ourselves when trying to figure out in the first place if it's even time to stop working? Well, I think that's a personal question for everybody. It just depends on your own personal circumstances and maybe how much you love working, how much you love the rest of your life, and I think what your doctor says. So, you know, when you're at that point where you're struggling at work and you're not sure whether you can continue, maybe accommodations have been put in place, maybe they're working, maybe they're not working, I think you have to evaluate, you know, where you see things going forward. And certainly everybody feels differently about these things, but you know, fatigue is a common problem that lots of people with MS have, unfortunately. And if you've got four good hours during the day, I don't know if it's fair to say you got to use them to work. I would say it's not fair. I would say life is important and a quality of life is important. So, you know, it's a, it's a different question uh, for everybody to answer on their own, but talk to your doctor and um, think long and hard about um, about your quality of life. I, I like that. I like the point you made about those usable hours. That's a term that I think of all the time, right? And, and sometimes we hold ourselves accountable to the same standard as people who can somehow stay awake for 16 consecutive hours. But it's that usable hours and and where you give them. And if that lines up with your priority, I think that's a great place to start. But once we have decided to go down that path, and sometimes it's not even our decision. Sometimes it may be that our employer can no longer accommodate us. How can we make the best case for being granted and then maintaining 
disability benefits because it's not a process of one and done. It's sort of you you may initially get improved, but there is this ongoing um, obligation to to meet the requirements. So I think the the takeaway message is to be very, very diligent about the paperwork and about the process, to take it seriously. Um, if they call you, pick up the phone. If they send you a letter, respond. And it's not something that people want to focus on because it's kind of a downer if you're talking about all the problems that you're having. But it is important to really take the process seriously. And I think, you know, having a good dialogue with your doctors, um, making sure they know the good, the bad, and the ugly, making sure that's documented as much as it can be so that when it is time to go through the application process, all those T's have been crossed and those I's have been dotted. Like the more proactive you are and the, the less you kind of ignore it because it's a difficult thing to think about, the better. That's my, that's my main advice. And I think too, like sometimes we see people who they've applied and there's there are forms that they have to fill out, like the claimant fills out, but then there are forms that the doctor has to fill out. Sometimes because doctors are busy, especially now post pandemic, it takes forever to get the paperwork from the doctor. So if you're really proactive and you know you had a consult with your neurologist a few months ago, maybe just ask next time you're in to see your GP, can I get a copy of that neurology consult note? Because then that way, at least when the insurer is asking you for the paperwork, you've got it and you're not waiting on the doctor or the office secretary to get it for you. So just to clarify, if you are waiting for your physician to fill out the paperwork that you've been given and it's taking them time, are you suggesting that you could forward the consult notes directly to the insurance provider? Yeah, you can. Absolutely. Okay. Yeah. yeah. I think it's it's also interesting to note, you know, like being on the same page as your doctor. And I think there is this kind of power dynamic sometimes between doctors and and patients. And we are entitled to have access to our own notes and records. And it can be a good thing to do, especially if you think, you know, your doctor maybe isn't quite taking you seriously to ask for those notes and make sure they are really documenting everything um, that's going on. But I I just, I want to like double down on what you said about um, keeping track of the nitty gritty. Like what exactly does that look like it's i mean it's one thing for me to make notes about you know my my walking is compromised or i was really tired but how detailed do we need to be pretty detailed i think like it depends on the nature and it, of your of what you're experiencing and if you're in the relapsing and remitting stage it's even you know more difficult because your condition is fluctuating right like that's a common thing but i think you know if you're having incontinence issues you know, don't, it's embarrassing, I think, but don't don't shy away from it. That's a real symptom that really impacts on someone's ability to work like and, you know, be there reliably and in the way we all want to show up for work. So those are the kind of symptoms that you need to be really upfront about. Um, same thing with fatigue. That's an invisible um that's an invisible symptom, right? Like it's not something that we can take an x-ray of and say, oh, like Archer's tired today. Like it's something that you have to give specific information about, make sure it's documented, ask your physician for suggestions about how it can be managed. There are some. Take advantage of, you know, advice that's offered to you. That's important. But 
yeah, like the, I, I don't want to make people like hyper focused on their symptoms because, you know, that's it's challenging enough already. But when the insurance adjuster reviews your claim, that's the stuff they're going to be looking for. So the more that's documented, the easier the process will be. So, yeah, you did say Ardra's tired today. Ardra's tired every damn day. But fatigue, <laughs> I think people will be surprised to know that fatigue is actually the number one reason why people with MS stop working or stop or or work less. And it's actually also, as you touched upon, the hardest symptom to prove. So, I mean, if we can get specific about how do we listen, how do we convince insurance providers that medical grade fatigue is real? How do we convince our employers? How do we convince our friends and families? Sometimes even how do we convince ourselves? It's tricky. Sorry, go ahead, Alex. Oh, no, I was just going to say, I think it like the detail uh, is kind of excruciating as well. I remember at one point we, um, well, Nicole was filling out, um, you'll you'll find out how new I am to like long term long-term disability in a second. But uh, when we were filling out, uh, or like I said, Nicole was filling out some paperwork um, and the doctor was kind of backing her up. It was like minutes, by the minute they would have to say, you know, she could only walk for so many minutes before she had to take a break. And this is how many minutes she was available um, to move from point A to point B. So it was, um, like I said, quite um, hyper detailed notes in terms of how much she could move uh, and what she was available for, for work. Yeah, so a lot of these, sorry, a lot of the insurance forms do give you that kind of hyper detail and the the uh, the companies are looking for it. And that's why having, you know, as well, we talked about dialogue with the physician, dialogue with the HR person at work can be can be helpful, um, it's assuming they're supportive. Having that dialogue, you know what, um, the fatigue is really unpredictable. I can't make that meeting today at 10 o'clock, uh, but I can do too. Uh, making sure that that kind of stuff is documented, um, making sure that, um you know, if there's lifting, uh, there's a part of the job, obviously, the more physical the job, the more demanding it's going to be. Um, but those forms are really detailed. They ask, like, how many hours a day are you required to sit? How many hours a day are you required to stand? They kind of assume that si- that sitting is relaxing, too, by the way. I always find that's kind of funny. <laughs> you know, oh, it's easy. She just has to sit all day. But no, like, I mean, that's where the cognitive demands of the job those forms also ask about those so when the doctor fills them out being clear that it's a cognitively demanding job which often sitting jobs are that's really important what what kind of jobs can i legally do lying down that's what i want to know i'm not going to answer that today okay Um, (laughs) i mean i think it's there's so much to unpack here but i think it's also about documenting what what you missed out on because you did something else, if that makes sense. I agree. If you had to leave something early or if you, or even if you did something, let's say that you did, I don't know, like, let's say you, um, you either an event at work that was really um, great and, but demanding physically, and then you crashed for the next three days, or maybe it was like a family birthday party that you put on. Um, and then you crashed for the next three days telling the doctor, like I was able to do it, but then I was out. That's the kind of thing that if it's documented does kind of explain that invisible symptom of fatigue. Yeah, it's an interesting experience when we spend so much energy trying to be positive and to focus on what we can do that there is this disconnect. Uh, Like it does feel gross sometimes to Mm -hmm. just 
really have to focus and document on all all the things you can't do. One other thing, I mean, you touched a little bit about the shittiness of incontinence and how that can be a disabling um, impact, but even just the time that it takes to manage your bladder and bowel routine, like how much time, how much of your life do you spend in the bathroom is is another measure, right? Yeah, absolutely. It's time. Yeah. It is time consuming. So that, that should be noted. And that can impact on, you know, whether um, you can be accommodated. I'd love too that you talked about cognitive function because I think that cognitive testing at baseline is not something that's been routinely done with MS, but we are seeing more and more that cognitive impact um, can happen much earlier. We have so many ways of compensating that we don't always recognize our deficits. I know I don't until somebody else points out to me that I no longer know the nine. I, I would table. never do that because I'm afraid of you. I'm, I would never, ever tell you that you uh, miss something ever. <laughs> yeah. Well, you're wise. <laughs> I know. But, I mean, it's like an argument to get cognitive testing because that can help um, support a disability claim that can show, you know, like working at a desk for eight hours is uh, there, there's a cognitive impact that has an overall impact on fatigue as well. Yeah, and there are vocational assessments like this is, you know, this is many, you know, long way down the road, but there are vocational assessments that are done by experts in the field who put someone into an office type environment. It's all a simulation, but they put them in and they give them, they make the phone ring and they have them try to multitask and they track how they do over the course of the day and they actually do quantify and identify um, the deficits that people are having and the impact of cognitive inefficiencies. So there are, they have to get, you know, we don't do that in every case, obviously, but there are ways that that actually can be um, tested and proven when you have those deficits. Is is that something that's covered by like a workplace benefits plan or something like that? Is no, that typically not, something not in my experience. It usually arises more when there is litigation. Sometimes the insurer will um, will do some type of assessment like that. It's not usually as detailed as it what I, as what I was just talking about, but it is mm -hmm. an attempt by by them and by us in the circumstances I was just describing to actually um, measure those. Um, those deficits that are otherwise kind of invisible or a little bit kind of wishy-washy, like they're hard to quantify. So that's right. why they do that. Yeah. I mean, I asked about coverage because something like drug coverage has is, is always been on uh, like my radar, Nicole's radar, whenever we're looking for, not looking mm -hmm. for it particularly, but just, you know, new jobs come up or something like that, um, or switching jobs, being in between careers and things like that. Uh, so drug coverage has always been sort of the primary thing. We've never really thought about long-term disability. Um, so, I mean, how important is it to, to kind of establish your understanding of long-term disability early on um, or, or as soon as possible? Um, another question being like, uh, could Nicole be covered on my plan if she stops working or if she isn't covered or something like that? Um, is, is my, how do I look into, what do I ask my, my sort of coverage um, to find out? And um, yeah, is it, is it too late to get, to get a long-term disability if she starts a new job because she has an existing condition? Our, our business is sort of, um, what's the attitude towards that? Are they afraid, avoiding, like, I don't know, should I, I'm wondering if I should be freaking out at this point, really. 
<laughs> well, I don't want to. No, I'm really afraid to answer. No, I'm I just, just build up these questions and I freak out myself. No, it's, it's they're good <laughs> questions. So first things first, there's two kinds of disability policies sort of in general. One is like a government or like a publicly available um, policy. And those depend obviously on where you live. In Canada, we have like a our Canada pension plan. Um, which has a which has both a pension component when you get older, but also has a disability component. Um, and then provincially, we have some as well. Then you have the private plans, which I think is kind of what you're asking me about, Alex. So for the most part, the private plans are employee-based. So like through my work, um, my husband and my kids have coverage for going to the dentist or physiotherapy or stuff like that, but only I have disability coverage through my um, through my work because I'm the employee and it's, that's the coverage. Um, so that would be the same for your wife. Um, she would not be covered under your, I don't, I suspect I would be very surprised if she was. Um, and then in terms of, you know, whether, you know, switching jobs, that is an issue because some policies, and we, we always say it depends on the wording of the policy. You got to read the policy, but some policies do have exclusions for pre-existing conditions. So if someone becomes an employee, like they switch employment and they're now covered by, you know, the benefits of the new employer, those benefits, when you look at that policy may exclude, um, pre-existing um, conditions. So sometimes it can create uh, an impediment to leaving employment because you you want to have that um, that coverage available if you need it because it's really important coverage. Yeah, we tried to get life insurance and they totally didn't even look at it. As soon as they saw MS, they were like, nope, too much of a risk for us. So I think like at, at any level, it seems kind of ridiculous, but uh, yeah. Yeah, I'm sorry to hear that, but it is, you know, they're, they're actuaries. They look at statistics. They are not warm and fuzzy people in general. They are, they're looking at the numbers. So, and, and they're risk averse too, really. Yeah. I mean, if anyone out there listening is not diagnosed with something yet, don't decline insurance. I when, yeah. when I had my first job, I I mean I was so young. I thought I only am ever going to need birth control. Uh, like I'm I don't want to <laughs> pay my monthly insurance premiums, and I declined insurance. And then I just like a couple of months before I was diagnosed, the employer made it mandatory. And oh my god, thank God they did. But I still declined critical illness insurance, which would have netted me like a million bucks uh, when I'd been, oh when I was diagnosed with MS. So then we'd be way closer. I mean, <laughs> yeah, don't, don't decline insurance. Now I'm like shilling for the insurance companies when you need it, you need it. <laughs> yeah, no, absolutely. Get it when you're young too, because you know, as soon as you can, because that's when the, the, the earlier generally that you, that you lock it in, the lower the rates are over the course of the policy. Yeah, I mean, um, I didn't, yeah. it was cheap. I didn't want to cut into my vodka fund, but, you know, you got to do does? it. Yeah, They made you do it. They made <laughs> me do it. Thank you. <laughs> Listen, especially when disability is invisible, it can feel unsafe to express joy, you know, when the consequences of not being taken seriously are so serious. Laura, I feel like you might be the wrong person actually to ask about this because your social media is like literally the most boring. You are one of those <laughs> lurkers who never posts anything. You just creep everyone else's. 
But that said, you I don't are even know why we're friends. I know. Because mm-hmm. you love following my Insta. Yeah, uh, yeah, I do. I actually just got Insta. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but you haven't posted anything. You're I don't terrible. know how to. Whatever. Yeah, What's your question? My question is, how concerned do people need to be about what they post on social media? So I'm going to like try not to freak Alex out or anybody else, but I'm going to go with pretty concerned. Yeah, I'm going to go with pretty concerned because remember how I talked before about the good, the bad, and the ugly and how important it is to talk to your doctor about all those things. The problem with social media is that aside from you, because you you share everything, um, and I'm not going to say you overshare because that wouldn't be very nice. But anyway, not everybody shares like you do, okay? Most people just put the good on. And I do, when I make a pie, I put a picture of the pie on uh, my social oh, media. I'll follow you for pie. Oh, I make really good pie, Alex. <laughs> um, I shouldn't say that. It sounds very boastful, but I, I feel like objectively I make good no, pie. But you make good pie. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah. Okay. So, and I make the pastry too. That's critical. But um, the, pro- yeah, like nobody puts, you know, the bad and nobody puts the ugly, like for sure. Like, so it's not the full picture. So if you don't have privacy settings on your social media, um, which I, which I think everybody should, or you have like a million friends or something like that, then, you know, it's pretty easy for the insurance company to look you up and they will, of course they will. You have to assume that they will. So um, I suggest putting your privacy settings on to the max and checking them because sometimes they change them on you. And I, you know, I think you should be careful um, because it is like the, you know, it's what, you know, we've heard of surveillance before and we don't see it in every case by any stretch, but we do see it periodically. Like it's there. And I did actually have a client whose case is now finished. He sent me a text a little while ago and I told you about this, Arthur, because I think it's so funny. So it's one of those, I don't know what you call it because I don't understand social media. What is it called? It's a meme. Okay, thank you. It's a meme. So it (laughs) says, dance like no one is watching, but text and email like it will be read in court one day. Love Mm -hmm. your lawyer. Okay. So like, it's true. Like, and that, and that applies to social media too, because, you know, it's just not, it's because it's not, it's not a real reflection of the whole picture because people don't put the full picture on. That's why it's an issue. So either put the full picture on, which I'm not suggesting, or just make sure you've got significant privacy settings and always be aware that it could be um it could be used against you i think that's the frustration is because it's generally accepted we know that social media is a highlight reel we know that it's a lot of bullshit but we're still still can be used against you yeah but if you're being honest with everybody and you're like you know you you, if whatever if you make a pie or whatever you you throw a birthday party and it's (laughs) a big damn deal but then you've gone to your doctor you've explained like then i was on the couch for three days then you know then then you're not being um you're not misleading you're just you're just putting part of it on the socials i think that's it yeah i think the scary part comes like if you're using a mobility aid on your social media and they use that to say we're not going to cover you because you know you've got this this you 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 require mobility aid or something and we're going to have to pay for that so your your claim is denied or something I don't know if I understand that because I feel like if you were having the mobility aid on the social media, then it would sort of be, to me, that would be evidence of the fact that you needed that support. Well, just that they kind of like went and, and searched your social media and used mm-hmm. it sort of to use it against you, if that makes sense. But Are you, uh, sorry, Alex, I think, are you talking about like a prospective employer? Because I think, yes, yeah, yes. any sorry, anybody yeah, who's about to, yeah, so we're talking about insurance, but yeah, if you're talking about um, and if you've applied for a job, I think it's pretty normal for employers to Google Google you. And sure. yeah, they yeah. might see that you're disabled and hold that against you. I don't know. That's, yeah, a gross conversation that does for a happen. different day. Mm-hmm. Yeah, sorry, I mm-hmm. guess, yeah. 
my mind just went in that direction, but yeah. No, but it's yeah. something, but the point, whether it's an insurance company looking at it or a prospective employer, like, I mean, I think it's just, it's just social media is so public and um, it, it can, it's just something to be mindful of. I don't think you should be paranoid about it. And I don't think you should only creep people and put pictures of pies. I just think you, you have to be mindful of it. That's all. <laughs> I think it's, I mean, anytime I post anything, you have to consider that anyone can see it, you know, your best friend, but also your worst enemy and, you know, whoever. Yeah. I think that's maybe the message. I don't know. It's still murky. Just, I, uh, yeah, I don't know. I, I, I am all in favor of people huh, like being able to have those joyful moments and share and express and not feeling like you, I like for me, the, the complication is feeling like you constantly have to present yourself to the world as like suffering and in pain and just this idea that you're not entitled to, to feel joy and happiness and pies and birthday parties. You know what I mean? Well, and I'm sorry if you, I hope you don't feel that way. You shouldn't. Um, I mean, yeah, I don't personally, but I, I think there are people who do when it, when it's like, when they're afraid they might lose their livelihood if mm-hmm. they, if they show anything other than, you know, pressure sores and mobility aids. Well, no, and it's not fair. It's not fair. It is um, one of the most unfair parts of the process, um, one of the most unfair parts of MS and probably our culture too, just because of the way that we, you know, evaluate success and the way that people identity, like how the, how they identify. Um, but I, you know, one of the suggestions, because you wrote a blog about this a long time ago, Ardra, if I recall correctly, one of the suggestions was, yeah, you got to look at, you got to keep track and you got to focus on all this stuff so that you're, you're kind of armed if the insurance company asks you questions, but the, you know, having a gratitude journal to kind of go the other way so that you are um, taking something that's, you know, not necessarily positive, but you're, you're sort of protecting yourself on the other, on the other end of it. I thought that was a really good suggestion. And I, not, you know, not just for people who are dealing with this kind of stuff, but being mindful of the things that we should all be grateful for and that kind of positive outlook. Um, the science people tell us that actually translates into better quality of health and life. So I think we well, should do if it. Science people say it. Those I, I won't question it because I don't, mm-hmm. yeah, <laughs> because I can't. <laughs> <laughs> Laura, call my lawyer sounds bougie and expensive. When is it time? How do we know when it's time to seek professional help? And how much is this typically going to cost us? So I think, um, and I'm not like going to like do like a better call Saul joke. I was thinking about that, but I won't. But, you know, no, like, I mean, I think most people, listen, most people when they call me, they don't want to be calling me. Like it's gotten to the point where they're like, I mean, what I else can I do? Yeah. Which I'm very grateful for. But um, yeah, most most people don't call me because they want to call me. They're upset. They are feeling like they're not being treated fairly by their insurance company. They have questions. Maybe they've been denied. Maybe they think they're going to be denied. Something is, something's gone wrong. Um, a lot of insurance companies have internal appeal processes as well. Um, you know, sometimes those work well, sometimes they are a waste of time. Um, they just sort of string people along, um, in my experience. Sometimes they, they are, you know, I think that they resolve as they should, but sometimes I feel like by the time we get involved, this, the client's gone through a bunch of different internal appeals and it's, it's you know, sort of already messy. So um, my suggestion is if you feel like you, sh- you might benefit from talking to a lawyer or you have a question that you think a lawyer could answer, call a lawyer. 
because most lawyers will talk to you to your you know question about cost. Most lawyers will talk to you um, at least at the beginning without charging you anything, just to kind of consult with you. Um, at least I would. I, I, most of the people who do what I do. Um, easily will do that because they want they're trying to figure out if there's a potential case as well and they're trying to help you figure out you know whether what you should do so call a lawyer um choose someone who's got you know a good reputation and who's um you know got you know good reviews and look them up do your research make sure that it's this is an area that they practice in and then call them and see how they present to you and see how they you know if they sound like they know what they're talking about then talk some more to them and if not call somebody else but most people um who call me they call me because they're they don't call me because they feel like they're being treated fairly or they agree with the insurance company's decision so yeah i I think just to interject i think it's important to recognize that just because an insurance company has said no or denied your claim doesn't mean like that's it like it uh, you should i think in that case seek legal advice, professional advice to make sure um, that 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 decision is warranted and that you that you have other options to pursue. Right, because the policies and the protection they provide, um, especially if you if you value them over in the years in the future, I mean, they have a real value to you and to your family. And that's why they're, they're called peace of mind policies, because they're designed to provide that. So they are they're absolutely worth inquiring about. Yeah. And I just, um, I don't know what the percentage is of initial claims that get denied and then are appealed and maybe a lawyer has helped. Um, and then the, the, the claim is approved, but I, I think it's significant enough that legal counsel is, is a good, um, investment. And I would also point out that if an insurance company offers to buy you out, that is also an important time to contact a lawyer. Mm. I agree. Is that a red flag? Uh, no, not necessarily. I mean, if they know that you your condition is um, not likely to improve and they're likely to continue paying you, you know, until you reach the, the termination of the policy date, um, they may decide, let's just, you know, see, maybe they'd like the lump sum now as opposed to receiving the monthly amount. The issue is that you don't, you're at a disadvantage because the insurer knows the true value financially of that policy over the years and what what they'd have to invest now to pay you that, you know, 10 years, 15 years down the road, you don't know any of that. So it is really wise to speak with a lawyer because you may sign off for, um, you know, significantly less than what that policy could pay you if you chose to stay on the claim, which you have the right to do. The offer is going to be in their best interest and you need to make sure that it's mutually beneficial before you sign anything. Well said. Laura, thank you so much for being here and for the reassurance that there are tools and resources and allies available for people navigating the disability claims process. Invisible illnesses aren't always taken seriously, and the burden to prove how sick we are is so pervasive that it can be a challenge to think of ourselves as healing or whole. When you have to document your deficiencies over and over, it can be hard to think of yourself as anything other than sick and incapable. If you're struggling with the disability claims process, consider keeping a list. A journal just for you where you can count your blessings, list the people who love you, pay attention to the activities that fill you up. 
Remind yourself of what you can do. Give yourself permission to feel joy from time to time, post a picture of that pie, and maybe give thanks to your legs who are just trying their best and don't need any extra attitude from you. Disability benefits are not charity. They are the mutually agreed upon contract. You got sick and you got a raw deal. MS takes a lot. Don't let it take your sense of self-worth too. Thanks for listening to Tripping On Air. Don't forget to visit us at trippingonair.com. Hi, I'm Ramia Amuthan. Join me weekly for AMI Audiobook Review, the podcast that explores new titles, introduces us to famous narrators, and updates what's hot at the Center for Equitable Library Access. Download episodes of AMI Audiobook Review from your favorite podcast provider. Hi, I'm Jenny Bovard. Join me monthly for Low Vision Moments, where I speak with awesome guests about some of the amusing things that happen when you're blind or partially sighted. Watch on YouTube or download Low Vision Moments from your favorite podcast distributor. Hi, I'm Red Sale, inviting you to download the latest episode of My Life in Books, where internationally acclaimed authors discuss their lives, their work, and three books that have resonated with them. That's My Life in Books, available wherever you get your AMI podcasts. Join me every couple weeks for the Outdoors with Lawrence Gunther podcast, where we learn about outdoor tech and tips. Plus, we look at news affecting the environment. AMI's Outdoors with Lawrence Gunther is available from your favorite podcast provider. Join us weekly for The Pulse with host Joita Gupta, who brings us closer to issues impacting the disability community across Canada. Watch The Pulse on YouTube or listen wherever you download your AMI podcasts. The Walrus is Canada's conversation, and you're invited to take part. Download AMI's Voices of the Walrus, where professional narrators read selected articles from the magazine. Available wherever you download your AMI podcasts. Hello, I'm Sean Priest. Join me monthly for Sean of the Shed, where I introduce you to all the technology that can be so useful to us as blind or partially sighted people. Find Sean of the Shed wherever you find all your podcasts. Hi, I'm Stephen Scott. Join me every day for Double Tap. It's a show where we occasionally talk about technology for blind and partially sighted people. You'll find us wherever you get your podcasts.